Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Did you know that this date is a palindrome? Did you read that? So today is... 02022020. It's been 900 years since that happened. So I'll see you on the next one, okay? <laughs> that didn't cost anything extra today. That just comes with the price of entry right here. So we're happy to be together. In the name of the Lord, let's pray before we go on. Oh God, it's been so good to already worship with my brothers and sisters today. We need to be together. We need to be reminded of who we are and whose we are. We need to be reminded of this name that is above every name. We need to find balance for our lives here, Father. We need to reorder our priorities. We need refreshment for our souls and our lives in a world that stands against us. We have sung already, if God be for us, who can be against us? And so, Father, thank you for the privilege of being here. Open our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke 5 is where we are this morning. Luke 5. This is uh, Cameron Hollapeter. He was a 19-year-old film student in New York City, and a few years ago, he was standing on the platform ready to catch the subway when he went into a seizure, and he fell onto the tracks below, and everybody kind of froze standing there watching, and it was this man, Vernon Altry, who jumped onto the tracks. He was with his little girl there, and he, he pulled He pulled Cameron off the tracks into the draining trough that is there uh, just seconds before the train arrived. As a result, uh, Altry was highly honored uh, by uh, the then Mayor Bloomberg. He was rewarded in a number of ways uh, because of his his heroic deeds. He appeared on the Ellen DeGeneres show, on Dave Letterman's show. And one of the statements he made in an interview was, what better way to start the year than by saving a life? And I love that statement. I adapt it for our purposes. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, what better way to spend our lives than by saving lives? Because that's why, that's why we come together, to be renewed, to be focused on the Lord who has rescued us, to worship the God who saved us, to be energized by our, the call on our lives, and to be involved in the most important thing in the world. Now, if, if you care about attending a church that understands people are lost, I say that because not every church believes that. There are some churches who believe that everybody eventually is going to be saved. I'd love that theology. It's just not in the Bible. Um, the Bible teaches that there are two destinations, heaven and hell. And because of, some churches don't believe that people will spend eternity in hell, that God will somehow eventually save everybody. Uh, But if you go to a church that cares about and believes people are truly lost, uh, they'll have some kind of purpose statement that says why they exist. Ours, you've heard over and over, you may be sick of it, but after all, it is Groundhog Day. So here it is again. Loving all people to new life in Christ. Say it with me. Loving all people to new life in Christ. Now, there'll be a leadership comes along in the future, and they'll change that. They'll write something better than that, something that speaks to us better. And, 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 but I assure you, sometime, whoever that is, it will still basically say the same thing. 
that we're here to get people to Jesus by loving people to Jesus and then and, and growing them and maturing them in Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what we're all about. We have the message. It's the good news. Gospel means good news. This is the best news of all. We have the mandate, make disciples. It's very clear. And we have the, the master who said it and commanded it, Jesus Christ himself. There should be no confusion. It's our responsibility. It's our privilege. It is our joy to be involved in this. But to do that, we need a clear vision about it. We need to come back to it because if we don't keep coming back to it, we will become very lame in it. We just will. That, that's true of anything. It happens in any category of your life that's, that's important to you. If you don't focus on it, it'll get sloppy. If you don't focus on your marriage, if you don't sometimes stop and evaluate your marriage, it'll get, it'll get very mundane, ordinary, with no life in it. Same thing in anything that's important to us. Certainly, it's important in our relationship, in relationship with Jesus Christ. So we started the year with a clear vision of Jesus, the best place to start. We focused on that, those few verses in Colossians 1 that teach us, about, again, about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Out of that, the natural thing to flow to, then, is this, this clear vision of our mission. That's what we we're going to do. So we're going to start with these two scenes in Jesus' life, two different homes. One has a new skylight. The other has a new life. One has the religious crowd. One has the immoral crowd. One demonstrates great faith. One demonstrates great change. So here's the first one, chapter 5, verse 17. One of my favorite. This is probably my favorite uh, scene in Jesus' life. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men were carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into their house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles, through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Now you get the picture. I mean, here's this, here's this group that gets him there. They can't get in. They go up. You're in the crowd, and suddenly you feel something on your neck. Maybe it's a bug, and you go like that, and then there's another one, another one. You look around. Other people are doing the same thing, and then you look up, and there's little, little pieces of dirt falling, you know? There's a picture of what a, a roof would look like right there. There are these saplings, <laughs> saplings that are tightly wound together, and they extend from side to side of the walls, and then on top of those saplings, there's a mixture of straw and, and mud and sand, and then on top of that layer would be tiles that they put. That's what the roofs were like, and there would have been a staircase on a typical Jewish house outside the house, how they got up there. They would dry things on top of the roof and things, probably do sunbathe and all that. Well, I doubt that. But anyway, they're, they're, they got, imagine being in the crowd and suddenly this is happening and you look up and what is that? The saplings are being pulled apart. Then you see fingers come through and then a hand and then two hands and then finally, finally six hands and eight hands, you know, and fi finally this, this hole in the ceiling, the size of a man's body opens up. And then, and then these guys, my picture is that they didn't have anything with them to lower this, the mat. I, I, I picture them laying on their stomachs and then they just get the corners and they lower it and say, hey, help us out. Then these people that take him and they, 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 somebody down below is lowering this guy right in front of Jesus. What a scene. Jesus knew what they, oh, uh, verse 29. Uh, what does that say? Can't read that number. Verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And the guy's thinking, thanks, but that's not what I came for. <laughs> yeah. But Jesus went to his real need, his felt need, 
was he wanted to be unparalyzed. But his real need was forgiveness. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And of course we know the answer to that. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because who knows? Nobody knows if your sins are forgiven. So that's the easier thing to say. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up. Not, okay, bring a wheelchair in, get this guy out of here now. He's healed. Or, anybody know a good physical therapist around here? Uh, how about an occupational therapist? This guy's going to need some help. He can't be left alone. No. Full coordination, full muscle intonation. Miracle. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I want to ask you, what makes a vibrant church? If we were to put uh, whiteboards everywhere, I'd say, okay, all you split up, go ahead, just start filling the, light, the, the whiteboard with things you think makes a, a vital church. Now, maybe you're here as a guest and you're looking for a new church home. Maybe you moved our area and you are not looking for a dead church. Let's go, honey, let's go find a dead church today, you know? And I, I hope we can find the deadest one because that's the church I want to be a part of. Well, no, everybody wants to be a part of a vibrant. And if we were giving time on the whiteboard, we would have all kinds of ideas, a really involved a youth program, a great vital children's ministry, a men's ministry, discipleship program, evangelism thing, outreach, prison ministry, all kinds of things. But I tell you this, nothing will make a church more vibrant than a shared burden for lost people. Nothing. There's no joy greater than when we help people get to Jesus there's nothing that does more for our spirits and souls and awakens us out of spiritual slumber than when we start being burdened about lost people and want to do something about it. And so, uh, here, what's what we're going to deal with today and this month? How are we going to be this? What does it mean? What does it mean to accept this mission? Because we have the marks here. We have the marks of a church that cares for dying people. These are the marks of a tree. I got four of them for you out of our text today. Now, I, didn't, I wouldn't have to say dying people. I could have said lost people. I could have said blind people. I could have said enslaved people. I could have said hopeless people. All those are appropriate words. But I used dead people because I think it gets our attention better. Because nobody wants to be dead. We want to be alive. And we're alive because of Jesus Christ. We're alive spiritually in him. Now, I'm not using the word dead just to, be, uh, to speak melodramatically. I'm speaking that way because Christ spoke that way truthfully. One time, a man was following Jesus, sort of. And he wanted to follow Jesus. He just said to him, first let me go bury my parents or my friends or somebody. He wanted to go bury dead people, or people who were dying in the dying process. And Jesus turned to him and said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. 
And what he was saying was, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. That was Jesus' estimation of many of the, of the, of the crowds that he saw. They, not only they were like sheep, like a shepherd, but they were dead because of sinfulness and being cut off from the Father in heaven. So here's what it takes to bring dead people to life, individually and collectively as God's church. The first one is desperation. That's the mark of a vibrant church who cares about dead people. This paralytic was a hopeless man. Uh, there was nothing he could do about his condition. Now, we see homelessness here. And we'll, we'll drive up by a, by a, a corner. And have you, ever, have you ever hoped the light would stay green before you stopped and you had to be right by him? Have you ever felt that way? I have felt that way before, shame on me, only because I don't know what to do with it. I don't know if by giving something, I'm enabling an addiction or an alcoholism. By withholding, am I being terribly unlike Jesus? I mean, it's a struggle. I have landed, I think, at a place right now I want to be, but for a long time, I had to try to figure out, you know, now I kind of want to stop there, you know. um, For those of us who have been to Israel, I mean, when you see homelessness there, it is, it is a deeper level than homelessness we see here. Um, the, the people there begging, especially at the gates of Jerusalem, I mean, it is a pitiful picture of human existence with twisted limbs and missing limbs, uh, leathered skin, filth. It is, it is gut-wrenching to be there and see this. That's how I picture this man on this mat. And I don't know. I mean, we don't know what happened here. We don't know if it's these, the men's idea to carry him, one of those that thought of it, or the man himself heard that the miracle worker is in town and he had to get to him. Somebody, somebody felt desperation. Either this man did or somebody felt it on his behalf and know that maybe this was the day coming. And by the way, in that day, at that time, there was a twisted theology that if that was your condition or position in life, then that was God's curse on you. So he also felt like somebody that God was showing his displeasure toward. So he had that to deal with as well, you see. This is a bad situation in every sense of the word. This man was desperate. So somebody decided to get him there. It needs to be the heartbeat of every church. It needs to be the heartbeat of this church. And I fear it's not. Because we value so much our fellowship, we value, we value being together, we love programs, we love what we do together, our values are different, and it's so easy, my friends, to just cut ourselves off from the people who desperately need him. Desperation is what drives a student to go to, 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 go to, to, go to uh, undergraduate school and prepare for cross-cultural ministry. It's what, desperation is what gives parents the joy that their son or daughter wants to do that. It's desperation that causes us to keep shelling out money sacrificially, that we can give this to the glory of Jesus. Our annual report says we've touched 45% 45 of the countries of the world through our mission efforts this year. How about this year making it 50% of the world's countries? Or what ministries in our local area have, should we still be partnering with that we're not partnering with? You see, desperation does that. It causes a, des- a, desperate, a desperate heart of a church causes us to, to do anything we can do 
to reach people for Jesus and rescue them from hell itself. The second mark is compassion. Compassion means to suffer with or to put self in place of another. Now, those of us in Christ, we can't imagine life without Jesus, can we? We want to think about life without Jesus. And we don't want our kids to end up without Jesus. We don't want our grandkids to end up with Jesus. We want to do whatever we need to do to help get people to Jesus and to help our kids and our grandkids love Jesus with all they have. Um, And yet, most of the people we meet are without Jesus. For our book club uh, that I'm in, we're reading Just Mercy. How many of you have seen the movie already? A few of you? I mean, the book is grueling. I want to go to the movie and not read the book. Uh, The book, uh, uh, it's about a, a lawyer who uses his degree to help people on death row who have not been dealt uh, properly in the justice system. And that shouldn't be there. And it, it, is, it, is, it is a hard book to read. I don't want to read I'm only reading it because I have to talk about it one day. And I don't want to. And, I, and I'm reading it because the subtitle is uh, A Story of Justice and Redemption. I'm still waiting on the redemption part. Right now, it's just really tough to read. And I was on the treadmill this week reading it, and I had to stop in the middle of it because all of a sudden it hit me that we are living in a world of people that are on death row, a death row far worse than one that leads to lethal injection. And how often I miss it, how often I I forget that, that Christ is coming, and every day people who are not ready to stand before him are leaving this earth experience. Friends, we have to be a church that understands this. I love Paul's words in Romans 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Oh God, give us hearts like that. Give us accepting hearts of this mandate and this, the Christ who sends us out for this very purpose. The third mark is innovation. Innovation. I love this scene. Uh, you know, there's no room when they get there. And they get creative. Now, I know me. If I'd have been, if I'd been one of the guys, I was, ah, oh, sorry, old chap. <laughs> there's no room. It's filled up. Maybe you can see Jesus tomorrow. We'll come back tomorrow. That'd be me. Can't do it. But somebody, either one of the guys carrying him or the guy on the mat himself, thought, no, 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 we're not stopping now. We've come this far. We're not turning back. That's how this group started to think. My, my, my guess is they had to take a, take a vote, maybe. Naysayers got outvoted. I would have gotten outvoted that day. We need a theology of innovation that we live with all the time. We are never more like God than when we are creative. Something happens to us as we get older. Now, my, I have a grandson. I have seven grandkids. My one grandson, Graham, is so creative. This is my grandson, Graham. He's always inventing stuff. He wears his mom out because he needs help getting all the stuff together. So this is his latest. This is his Gatorade with a straw. Goes to the bottom of his popcorn bowl. So he can have his popcorn and Gatorade right there. Handy. <laughs> you know? So he's always coming up with, I suppose he'll be an engineer, 
maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, this is, when I look at him, I think, what happened to me? <laughs> I, I'm not very creative. You know, I am so stunned by some of you, the, the vocations you have, or, uh, or, the, or uh, those of you in marketing and advertising, you know, some of you and what you write. It's just amazing to me how creative you are in writing or other things that you do with your life and your hobbies. We, we, we have, but typically as adults, unless you are designed to be creative, we don't think the rest of us are. And yet God created all of us to re reflect his image, including creativity. And we as a church need to learn to continue being creative in whatever that means. Now, on Christmas Eve this past year, we gave away an iPad. I know people thought, why in the world are you giving away an iPad? You know, because there was a design for it. The group that planned the, I wasn't a part of that circle, but those who planned the, the Christmas Eve gathering wanted to give away an iPad to be generous for one thing, but also to make contacts with people who may have never walked in our building before. And maybe we could get some contact information, not to nag them, but at least, you know, encourage them. And so uh, there were 20, about 20 to 2,900 people here for Christmas Eve. 599 of them signed up for the iPad. 27 of those had never been here. We had no contact, no touch with them before. This was the first touch as far as we know. Of those 27, 14 signed up for either equip you, engage, or starting point. So that was good. And then the, the man who won, uh, I don't know if he and his wife are coming here or not. He came because his wife had been watching our sermons online for the past few months and decided to come here for Christmas Eve. Now, I don't know what God's going to do with any of that. Maybe nothing will result. But something was done that might go somewhere sometime. Two of our college students are Paul Planker and uh, Ty Royer. Uh, they, they, go, they go to Purdue, their roommates there. And by design... They wanted to get other guys to go with them to the Christian Campus House, one of the best campus ministries in the United States. And so they, they played, found the best music they could. They opened their dorm room, hoping guys would stop in, and guys did. And as a result, they took 14 guys with them to the Christian Campus House. It took a little bit of thought and creativity to do something in the name of Jesus. Julie is a six-year-old girl in Lexington, Kentucky. On Christmas morning, she baked brownies, and she went to UK's library to hand out brownies to any student who might walk by on Christmas morning. Here came a student, and she gave him a brownie. He said, why are you doing this? And she said, because Jesus wants me to. She didn't know that that student was a Muslim student. And for the previous two years, that guy was wrestling with the tenets of his faith. He said to Julie, do you think I could go to your church? She said, sure. So he went to church with Julie that Sunday. He didn't go to big church. He went to children's church. And he sat on the floor with Julie and heard for the first time the story of Zacchaeus. And he kept going back, sitting on the floor with Julie and that student, months later, was baptized into Jesus Christ. Now, what's your problem? <laughs> All right, maybe you shouldn't bake brownies. Maybe you're that bad. I don't know. <laughs> don't think about what you can't do. What can you do? What can you do to build a bridge with somebody to love them to Jesus Christ? Because we, I think we all agree with it collectively. 
but do we live it individually? That's the question. What a church we would be. What vibrancy would be here if we truly took God at his word and did what he said to do. Paul said, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So let's figure that out. And the, and the fourth mark is cooperation, working together. You know what? Have you ever had to move somebody that's dead weight? I mean, it's nearly impossible. But when you have a, a few, you know, you bear it together. Now, the one question I have for you today is who, got, who carried you to Jesus? Who would, be the, what would be the, who would be the top four people God used to get you to Jesus? Now, I've asked that question to some people I get to have a spiritual conversation with. Uh, and uh, they'll say, well, nobody really. We, I just Googled the church. No. How did you get? I Googled. No, more than that. What else? Well, I think. I said, did anybody, is that, when you were a little uh, boy, did anybody ever take you to church? Well, yeah, oh, he was carrying you to Jesus. You didn't know it, but a seed was planted. Was there anybody in your extended family who believed in Jesus at all? Well, you know, my grandmother died when I was very little. I was about five years old, but I remember, I remember her praying for me. Oh, your grandmother, your dead grandmother carried you to Jesus. Yeah. And they might tell about a friend in college they knew, or they, they, they were turning the radio, and they... They paused on Caleb, and they heard this really good psalm. They looked, oh, Caleb got you to Jesus. All possible means God will use to get people to Jesus. Maybe today you'd all text those top four people and thank them or call them, email them. Thanks for carrying me to Jesus. Because we all need that. We've got to cooperate together. We got to work together. You see, it used to be like when I was first in ministry, I could meet with a person who was pretty much a blank slate, and I could just, I could just talk to a person, tell them what they need to know, and okay, yeah, I want to do that. I want to be right with God. It's just not true in our world anymore. And today in our world, it takes a person knowing seven people who have a genuine living relationship with Jesus to get to Jesus themselves. They need to have seven good friendships of people who really know Jesus to get them to Jesus. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of conversation, a lot of just enjoying being with each other. See, here, and here's, the, here's the principle for life. The more significant a decision, the longer it takes to make a decision. We know that, right? I mean, it takes longer to buy a car than to buy a coat. It takes longer to buy a coat than to buy a rump roast. Well, unless you're that picky, you know. It takes longer to buy a rump roast than to buy a book of stamps, right? The significance of the decision determines how long it takes. So when we're walking with somebody to Christ, you realize what we're trying to get them to? A new Lord for their life. A new purpose for their life. A new worldview. A new lifestyle. Everything is an upheaval. So we have to be able, we have to be willing to love for the distance. And to engage for the distance. And to be okay for the distance. Another way we cooperate is just praying together. You know, Bill Furman's in our, one of our men that comes Friday morning to our men's group at, 
At 6 o'clock every Friday morning, 6 to 7, we're together for devotion, to eat together, and to pray together. And he said, recently, there's about 60 or 70 of us are there, and he suggested uh, a few weeks ago, why don't we just all write down a name of a person we know is not ready for Christ? And every week at our tables, we'll pray for a different person. So that's what we're doing. We're just eight guys at each table praying for that one particular person. We don't know what's going to happen to it, but the least and the most we can do is be praying for people who are not ready for Christ, who are not in Christ. Maybe in spring, you need to have a block, block party with other people in your neighborhood who love Jesus and just open your yard, have a cookout just to build relationships with your neighbors you don't even know their names. Or, or, or maybe, maybe desserts on the driveway as some people in our, our church have. They have desserts on the driveway once a month. Bring dessert. We just sit there and around together and chew the fat just to build relationships and enjoy people. That's what Jesus did. As you're going, he says, make disciples. It's not a compartmentalized thing we do. We do it as we're going. Again, though, if you don't think people are dead, you're not going to be involved in helping them have life. It starts there. Now, out of that then, here, 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 here's the mark dying people brought to life by Jesus have. That's the second part of our text. I said the marks dying people brought to life by Jesus, but actually, I'm not going to talk that much about this. You've heard most of what i got to say, but you're not leaving yet, so here you go. Verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, that's Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But we like hanging around healthy people, don't we? That's where we're comfortable. We don't like to be around sick people. We might get contaminated. That's what we think. That's why we have to stay in our holy huddles because we might, something might happen to us if we hang out with people like that. We got to get over that. We got to learn to go where sick people are. For those of us in Christ Jesus, there's nothing quite so stirring as the testimony of a dramatically changed life, right? And this is one dramatic one. Evidently, evidently, Levi, Matthew, had been in the crowds. My guess is Jesus had seen him and noted him. He was a tax collector. Most of you know a lot about tax collectors in that day. They were the worst of the worst. That Jesus put them on the level of prostitutes. Um, they... They had no morals. They were despicable. They were vile. They were scoundrels to the nth degree, taking from people and just becoming rich at other people's expense. They had no principles at all. Despite that, Jesus looked at him and thought, that's the guy I want. Isn't that great? Aren't you thankful we have a Lord like that who sees people like that? Every person you ever see Remember, it's an image bearer of God. Every person you feel like writing off, every person you don't see any value in, you are wrong. Every person has potential. Imagine the day Jesus introduced the dirty, dirty, the dirty rotten scoundrel Levi to the other 11 apostles. Hey, we're going to be together for three years. And they're thinking, you must be joking. But they hung out together for the next three years. And he becomes a writer of the biography of Jesus. 
You know, sometimes we call funerals these days celebrations of life. I'm not against that. I think that's great. But a rose by any other rose, by any other name is still a rose. And we can call it anything we want. But when you attend a funeral, the tears still come. The pain is still there. The separation is real. Now, we don't grieve like the rest of the world has no hope. But there is grief. And we struggle through all of that, don't we? We do. But you know, when we watch a person be baptized into Christ and be raised up, it is a true celebration to life and of life. And we applaud. I mean, that's a pale thing to do in response. We should have all kinds of ideas of how we're going to celebrate that person who was once dead and is now alive. We get, when we walk with a person to Christ, we are pointing them to a life of adventure and joy and purpose and eternal uh, a life and abundant life here and now and to a person that will walk through them through any valley when the earth shakes under their feet that they stay strong and solid. The life, a life that is really life. This person is Joseph Meister. You probably never heard of him before. Where is he? There he is. That's Joseph Meister. He lived outside Paris in the 1800s. On July 6, 1885, he was mauled by a rabid dog. And in that day, of course, there was nothing to do for rabies. And so rabies would lead to a slow, painful death. And Joseph's mother was aware that in Paris was Dr. Louis Pasteur. And she made his way to him because she knew that he was investigating uh, a rabies vaccine. So she begged Dr. Pasteur to do something. He said, I don't, I don't know the outcome yet. I'm not far, along, not far enough along. And if he dies, I'll be, I'll be held responsible. I'll be charged as a criminal. She pleaded, and finally, Dr. Pasteur, he, he agreed, and he, he, applied, uh, he applied the medication for 10 days. Dr. Pasteur died in 1895, and before he died, he said, I only want three words on my tombstone, Joseph Meister lived. Now, my question for you is whose name will be on yours? Let's pray. Father, cross on which Jesus died bore a sign above him this is Jesus king of the Jews and he has become our king and on that day father 2,000 years ago this great exchange happened so that we wouldn't have to live a life of death that we could be resurrected to a new life. So three days later, after he took his last breath, Father, he walked out of that tomb. And over his tomb, today are our names. And we so thank you, Father, for that. So we pause now to remember 
this grand occasion in history when Jesus died for the sins that brought us condemnation. And we celebrate at the same time the life that we get to live today. But Father, how can we do this and not be heavily burdened by people in our lives who don't understand this, who don't know this, who don't know him? And so as we remember you today, Father, we, we bring you prayers of gratitude and thanksgiving. And we bring you the names of real people we know whose names we want included over that empty tomb. And we give ourselves to you that will use us to that end. May God be praised in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.